Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey there, Jason Whiteley with you for this episode of Yolitics. Wheeler is still out for his back surgery. He is doing better. Uh, so I'm having a cold one alone today. Not unusual, if you know me. I'm having a, uh, a tailgater beer. This is an American Blonde Ale. It's from Panther Island Brewing Company in Fort Worth. And the tasting notes on the side of the can here say, crisp, bright, and clean. I can attest it is all three. No, I, I tease Wheeler that his back surgery he had was probably outpatient, but he's taking 11 weeks just to just to chill out. He does say, though, he's going to uh, join us so we can call him up even before he returns to work. He wanted to keep his microphone at the house so he could uh, chime in. So in the next few weeks here, we'll have to give him a call. But today's podcast isn't so much about Texas politics as what we usually do. This week, though, it marks one month since Russia invaded Ukraine. And if you're like me, you can't get enough of this. You're reading and watching everything you can on it. Uh, I, I hope you enjoy this podcast because I, I'm uh, really looking forward to this. You know, we, we've seen Ukrainians slowing the ground invasion with, with the resistance they've done. But there's a really big concern that the battle for Kiev is looming. Kiev, as you know, is the capital. And if you're like me, though, you always probably heard Kiev pronounced as Kiev. That's the Russian pronunciation. Kiev is how the locals, Ukrainians, pronounce it. So that's why you hear so many people shifting that pronunciation to Kiev as opposed to Kiev. Kiev, if you don't know enough about the city itself, it's home to three million people. And here's what's interesting. Two-thirds of the population in Kiev, two-thirds of them have not fled. They are still there in the capital city. Most of the journalists are, uh, you know, on, on the western side of the country in a city called Lviv, L-V-I-V. Maybe you've seen that on your TV screen somewhere. It's in the western part of the country near Poland. It's a little safer. The thinking is if if Russia pushes, you know, that far to the west, then uh, a lot of people can take off back into Poland, which is a NATO country. But there are some brave journalists that are in Kiev itself. And, you know, they're essentially awaiting for the fight to come to them, the Russian invasion to really come to them. Russia's already firing missiles into Kiev, but soldiers haven't made it there yet. Here, here's what's kind of scary. I, I was reading this over the weekend, and, and experts say if Russian troops move into Kiev, if they finally are able to advance that far, this could be the largest urban battle in 80 years since World War II. Nothing has come close in any other city, in any other uh, war over the decades. But if Kiev is, is confronted by the Russians on the ground, it could be a particularly uh, bloody situation there. One of the journalists who's actually in Kiev is my friend Madeline Kelly. She's 24 years old. She's from Colorado. She's covered lots of conflict in her short career, including the January 6th insurrection, democracy protests in Hong Kong, and civil rights protests and riots in Denver. And that's where I met her a few years ago. I follow her on Instagram. She's at Kelly Independent, K-E-L-L-Y Independent. 
And we arranged a call the other day. So much of what we see and read about Ukraine right now is about military movements. But millions of people have not fled the entire country, much less Kiev itself. And they can either not afford it, they have nowhere to go, or, you know, they want to stay and fight for their country and for democracy. So I, I wanted to give Madeline a call and I wanted her to, to explain what life is like in the capital right now, because it's only faced some Russian missile attacks, but the fighting hasn't really advanced there yet. So what's the anxiety like? What, what are people like? What is day to day life like? That's why I gave her a call. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I can. It's good to see you. Perfect. Good to see you as well. How have you been? You're, I, I've been doing well. Your hair has gotten longer since we uh, yes. last <laughs> saw each other in Denver. Yeah, it's, it's growing. I haven't cut it since. I bet. Hey, are, are, tell me again. Are you from Colorado? Um, I, I can't remember. Yeah. yeah, I was born in Denver. Always lived in Colorado up until October when I moved to Germany. Let's just start out. Tell me where you are right now. Um, I am currently sitting in a friend's apartment in Kiev. Is that where you're staying? Uh, yeah, it's been a little bit of a weird situation. So unfortunately, um, I was staying with my translator and just something came up. So I'm just kind of moving into a more uh, permanent situation. It's kind of hard with these things to find permanent housing. Um, so it's just kind of a very go with the flow situation. I can imagine. What is the sense like there in Kiev right now when you leave the apartment, and go down to the streets? I mean, what, what is it? Fear, dread, hope, optimism? What is it? Um, it's resilience. Uh, I think a lot of people are just kind of. Um, it's it's a very quiet city. A lot of people have left. Um, it's it's empty. It's a very strange, eerie feeling. But people in the city are. Fantastic. I mean, the air raid sirens will be going and they won't stop doing whatever it is they're doing. They'll wait in lines. Um, I've had people stop me in the store and ask if they can do interviews with me. Um, anytime I've taken like an Uklan, which is the Uber here, they've been very inquisitive and people are very nice. And it's just kind of um, it's resilient. People aren't dread. They're are dreading anything. They're not sad. They're just kind of persistent and going about their daily life and making sure that whatever they can keep consistent, they keep consistent. So stores are open. The Ubers are operating. I mean, life is going on with all this happening around you guys. Yeah. Um, most, so the stores that are open are mostly pharmacies. Um, coffee shops have started to open, which is interesting. And then of course, um, food supply stores. So any sort of grocery stores. Um, and grocery stores are surprisingly well stocked depending on the part of town. It's either canned meat or fresh meat. I think it just kind of depends on where you are, but, um, no one's going shopping or going to the malls, but all the necessities are there if you need it. Did you expect that at all? Um, I didn't expect them to have as much food as they do. I think there's a lot of conversation in the media of um, it being hard to get food out here when it's hard to get comfort food. Like I'm not going to find ground beef to make my favorite dish, but I'm going to be able to find spaghetti and sauces and just about everything. Um, it's very simple eating, but it's, it's good. I'm not complaining at all. 
And you said coffee shops are starting to reopen. Are people going, sitting down, having coffee in these places or, or what? Um, yeah, the one, so the ones that I've seen open are like the little stands on the side of the road. So they're just kind of, you go and get coffee and just go about your day. So I think people who are walking throughout the city will just stop and get coffee. Um, I've heard that some in the neighborhood of Podil, Podil, um, those are open where you can sit down and kind of read and hang out. Um, it's a very kind of hipster neighborhood is what I've heard. Um, so they're they're open for business again. Um, everything closes early. Everything closes at 4 p.m. because the curfew is at 8 p.m. So it seems like everyone gives you four hours to get home before the mandatory curfew. And and even when air raid sirens sound or you hear explosions or something in, in the or you know rumbling in, in the uh, distance, people are continuing about their daily lives. Yeah. Um, Honestly, no one really seems to pay attention anymore unless it's extremely close. Um, even uh, I have kind of stopped paying attention to the air raid sirens. They can be pretty consistent throughout the day. Um, they'll start and stop and start and stop. And I think it's an abundance of caution more than anything else. But um, when there is anything close by, people do pay attention to that one. And how long have you been there in Kiev? Um, I got to Kiev, I believe, March second so so right after everything started we're we're now closing in or here we are now at uh you know one month into this uh the yeah. fighting there uh with the russian invasion um tell me why you decided to go to kiev I, I i know you and i have talked before and you covered the uh democracy protests in hong kong um you were there covering the civil disobedience and, and the riots in denver colorado but this is this is completely different why'd you decide to go here um I have uh, pretty consistently, I think, since I started in Hong Kong, I wanted to kind of keep pushing forward. And, um, you know, I did the democracy uh, democracy in Hong Kong, the Black Lives Matter movement. I covered, um, I don't know if you heard, but January 6th, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And I think um, I started my master's in Germany in international war studies. And I wanted to move that career into not just civil unrest, but I wanted to specifically focus on conflict and um, war itself and move into that. And it just so happened to be at the perfect time in my studies and the perfect time with me living in Germany. And I was able to establish setups here and able to meet people and make sure that I had um, a team here in Kiev as well. And it just so happened to work out perfectly um, to have me be in Ukraine. And it's definitely a very interesting conflict. Um, I think it's an e not an easy one to cover, but it's a very, um, it, it's a good one to cover in the sense where there's a lot of um, black and white moral morality behind this one. And I think that's kind of what a lot of us on the ground have found is that um, it's, it's easy in a very particular sense to be able to be here and to talk about it and um, especially on the Ukrainian side, and everyone here is fantastic. Um, people are willing to help all the time. And you mentioned people will stop you in the grocery store and, and want to talk to you. What, what kind of stories yeah. do they want to share with you? Um, this person in particular is actually a really interesting guy. We call him the mad philosopher. He um, wanted to talk to us about um, what makes humans evil and entropy and morality and what he does in Kiev, and he was here for the Maidan revolution um, eight years ago now, I believe. 
Um, so he kind of talked about the difference in Maidan in versus now and how um, the Ukrainian soul is very based in taking care of each other and that kind of morality. Um, he was very interesting. He had a lot to say and he's still emailing and texting my translator to just add more on to what he wants to say to us. He's he's an interesting character. <laughs> you mentioned resilience as well, but we, we're all seeing uh, the Russians still trying to advance towards uh, Kiev there. What do you expect when they arrive? Oh, they're going to have a terrible time. Um, everyone here, the even the grandmas, even the small little ladies, the old men, people with canes, the young families that have chosen to stay, everyone that I know has um, gotten ready. There's Molotovs pretty much all throughout the city. There's Molotovs hidden. Um, no one is going to give up the city. I think even uh, just the average citizen is willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that the city is not given up to Russia. They're, um, I, I don't believe that they can hold the city at any given point. I really don't. I think it's, um, there's no way. There's no way anyone in Ukraine would let that happen. And no one in Kiev would let that happen at all. Here in Texas and across the U.S., all over the West, I guess, um, you know, we're, we're seeing about everyone fleeing uh, Ukraine. But when, when you look at the total numbers uh, on the outside, there's what population of 44 million people live in, live in uh, Ukraine. I think I read like three and a half to four million actually live in Kiev. And only a million or so, I believe, have, have left Kiev. So there's still quite a few people there. Yeah. Is that right? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think um, it's children. It's the family. So a lot of the people that I've talked to, their husbands, and they have decided to stay in Kiev, but their wife and children have either crossed the borders, refugees, or they have gone west. So a lot of people are going to Lviv in more safer western areas. Um, but most people who don't have young children have decided to stay. I think I've seen probably four kids in the three weeks that I've been here. Um, it's it's definitely families with children who have decided to move out of the city and move either to cross as refugees or to just go further west um, just for safety, which is, I would argue, a good thing. That way kids aren't around. Yeah. Is there a sense of safety there at all? Do you feel safe at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think. The only real concern that we have is that kind of um, random missile from the sky. I've gone to a few um, missile sites already where it was just either a rocket was shot down or something just random hit at the right time. But there's no day-to-day -day, um, air raid to air raid. It's not really a concern. It's definitely, I feel completely safe. I don't really have any fears about walking on the street or fears about going about my normal life here and there's no fears of interviews. It's just very, you know, pretty safe, especially when you're not on. So there's districts um, where Irpin and Bucha are having obviously all that horrible stuff happening where the Russians are. And there's the Ovalon district. And then further in, when you get to the city center, there's just nothing really happening out here. I think there's only been one missile strike in the city center since I've been here. And for our listeners, just to, to lay this out, like Irpin, these are like suburbs, essentially, Yeah. Um, that, that any city would have. So this, this 
the central business districts kind of, I, I presume where you are, it's the, the area you're, you're just kind of discussing, but there's a lot of fighting getting close to you and you still feel safe there, huh? Yeah, I, I haven't seen it really move close at all. I think Western media has been talking about how the Russians are trying to kind of encircle us. And from being here in Kiev, I think the first few days when that was kind of a big concern, we were a little bit worried and we were making sure um, that if it happened, we would have a way out before it got encircled. But everything has kind of stalled at the end. I think there's been a lot of um, reports that the Russians are kind of just trenching themselves into these areas. Um, they haven't really moved much. It's just kind of been the same thing day to day, the same neighborhoods, the same kind of streets where all of it is happening. It's not really moving much into the city center or even close really into the city itself. Everything that I'm reading is, is just remarkable about how strong the Ukrainian resistance is, uh, which is fantastic to hear. But you, you mentioned uh, making sure there's always safe passage, safe passage to get out. It, how do you know when you need to leave? Um, that's yeah. I think that's a very interesting thing. Um, I don't think there's any like um concrete examples of when to leave. You just kind of get the sense of it. Um, unfortunately, before I had armor that was coming to me, and it got stolen off of the back of a truck. So I'm currently stuck without armor. Um, and you're, so, you're talking about like a, a bulletproof vest or something. Yeah, bulletproof vest and then a Kevlar helmet. Um, it got stolen, unfortunately. So I've been currently um, dealing with that. And I think there's a lot of risk, like mitigation for myself is kind of deciding when, um, at what point is it safer for me to leave than it is for me to stay. Um, and I think with with this job, there's always a lot of risk involved. And I think it's just kind of deciding at what point is, you can kind of feel it out. I don't think there's any set roadblocks or set things that you can say, if A, B, and C happens, then I'll leave. It's very much just kind of dependent on the day-to-day -day life. And I haven't really had the feeling of leaving yet. What do you think that feeling will be? I'm not sure yet. I think, I think it'll be kind of that feeling more of dread for what's to come instead of the idea of being able to work and produce of what's to come. So I think um, a lot of what I'm here for is producing that work and working on what I really want to do and making sure I get these things done and taking pride in my work. And I think when um, it turns into dread of having to do this, then that will be kind of more of the point is when um, the idea of having to work through it is going to be worse than working through it. We've seen about the several journalists who died, some working for Fox and, and the independent uh, documentary producer who is from Arkansas. Um, how did that news hit you? It's I didn't know any of them personally, um, but it's it was definitely it's a small group of people who kind of do this. And, um, you know, when you're in Kiev and you see coming over the telegram channels that an American passport is found on someone who's been killed. And then a press pass is found on someone who's been killed. It's a little um, sobering because I think it's, sorry. <coughs> I think it's easy to kind of lose yourself in the invincibility of it all. Cause you think, well, I'm here to do this stuff. And with um, Sky News earlier and where they were shot and they were able to kind of walk away from it and have this interesting story to tell. I think the invincibility of it all can really get to your head. And 
seeing the unfortunate circumstances um, with Brent Renaud and Pierre and the young Ukrainian journalist, um, it kind of really sobers you up. And also I think it really, um, for me, it emphasized the importance of fixers because the young Ukrainian woman who was killed for Fox, there's been not a lot of talk about all the work that she's done. She was also 24. um, And some people that we've interviewed recently knew her personally and were very good friends of hers. And I think it was a huge loss for this community. And I think it hasn't been acknowledged enough how much of a loss it was to lose a young journalist like this. What does your day consist of, Madeline, as a as a photojournalist there in this war situation? Yeah, I think um, so. The first few days here was kind of mostly getting myself settled and making sure I have everything and um, making sure I had translators. Um, but day to day, I think um, curfew ends at 7 a.m. So at 7 a.m. we're allowed outside again. So if something happens at 5 a.m., like there's been a few apartments that have been hit by missiles. So if something happens at 5 a.m., then we will try and go there. Um, or in the mornings, we'll just kind of, if there's nothing that happened overnight, we just kind of wait and see what happens. Um, so there's kind of that few hours from 7 to 10 where we're kind of waiting. I've noticed that the morning is tends to be when things happen. So we just kind of wait and see. And then after that, I usually meet up with um, another journalist who I've been working with a lot. And then we kind of either decide to go through interviews with people or um, the magazine that, not magazine, the newspaper that we have been working with a lot um, enjoys kind of day-to-day key coverage. So we're kind of working on stories with them and interviewing people. And then we're thinking of working on some other stories, um, talking to people at the coffee shops and just kind of um, finding certain stories. Um, So recently we did one, there's a group here called Cosmo Camp. They essentially do like a Ukrainian burning man. They're an art collective here in Ukraine. Um, They do like art trains. They do art classes. They do all these really kind of cool things for Ukrainian art. And then, of course, every year they host a art festival that's very similar to Burning Man. Um, Well, not very similar, but it has the Burning Man essence here. Um, And ever since the war broke out, they actually live underground in a bunker and they build hedgehogs, um, the little anti-tank traps. We call them hedgehogs. Um, They build hedgehogs. They build stoves for frontline soldiers to keep warm and cook food. They build um, bulletproof vests. They've kind of taken over an entire um, area and just have started building military equipment. These are artists who are building these things? Yeah. So some people don't even know how to weld, and they learn to weld um, by building anti-tank traps. It was very interesting. Wow. It's, it's unbelievable that, that uh, you know, how people are, are adjusting to this. Um, you mentioned some of the scenes that stuck with you, you know, the, the, the people in the, the art collective. Um, what else has really kind of seared into your mind since you got there three weeks ago? Um, I think a big one was uh, when I was crossing the border, it was very interesting. I had a, a strange time, um, but I was sitting. Um, I went to the border and it turns out they closed the border crossing by foot because I was supposed to cross by foot and meet with somebody. Um, So I had to get on a bus full of just random military men and they just took me across the border. And as we were crossing in this bus, it was a big like tour bus. It was just waves of refugees coming. People were just carrying their kids. They were it was um, kids were just pushing suitcases. And then I got to the train station in Lviv and. Um, K 
kids were just sleeping in piles on the ground, just piles of their backpacks and children sleeping. And it was, um, the refugee crisis is pretty bad. People just trying to flee West and, um, and definitely some of the missile strikes that have happened. Uh, it's, um, it's hard to see someone's entire life completely destroyed in less than a second. I think when we get to these sites and it's very easy to kind of see the outside of the building and say, oh my God, that's horrible. How could that happen? But there have been a couple of times when we've been able to get inside the buildings and we've been able to go inside individual apartments and we're able to see that they had food in their fridge and that this is a children's bedroom and that um, people, there's one, the living room was just destroyed, but somehow the family photos stayed on the wall through the explosion. Um, and it's just, it's, it's very, um, it's, I, I don't know how to describe it, but when you're walking through the remnants of someone's life, it's, it takes a lot to just kind of take photos because it feels very invasive. Um, but you have to take photos of it all um, to document it, but it's, it's very invasive to walk through the remnants of somebody's life like that. Has this gotten emotional for you at all? Not yet. Um, I think it's been very easy to kind of compartmentalize. I think being able to know that I have to be home at eight o'clock, I have to be locked in a house at eight and I'm able to just kind of, um, watch TV or work on my master's papers, uh, then I'm able to just kind of separate it a lot. Um, but I think there's going to be a time um, where there's going to be a little bit of a personal reckoning, whether it's when I'm leaving or whether it's something else comes up that is a little bit heavier that it's just going to be. Um, I think it'll be there. It'll come. You mentioned you're doing homework when you're when you have to be inside. Now we're doing the interview with you right now. It's it's almost ten o'clock uh, p.m. there in, in Kiev. Um, what what's it like out on the street right now? Is it are, are lights on? Is it is anyone or soldiers walking around or anything? Um, so it's curfew. So only like, um, people aren't really walking around. They're just kind of, um, soldiers are just at their blockades or they're driving in special cars. So only certain people are allowed out. Um, I think on a scale of one to you'll get shot if you're outside of curfew, it's pretty close to you'll get shot. Um, they're very, very strict with their curfew. Um, so people aren't really walking around. There's military trucks driving. Um, the street lights are on. I don't think they can turn off like the individual street lights, but um, entire skyscrapers will probably have four lights on. Entire apartment buildings that are 30 stories tall will have four lights on. Um, so when you see the entire city, um, there's lights, but it's not the way a city should look. It's, yeah, it sounds very muted. Are, are people told to... to uh, uh you know, close their windows at night. So their, their buildings aren't lighted up or their homes aren't, aren't lighted. Yeah. So the, we do a lot of light masking. Unfortunately, it's just hard. Some places don't have curtains or the ability to light mask, but a lot of people have been light masking. Um, when I was taking the train from Lviv to Kiev, it ended up a four hour, five hour train ride ended up taking 10 hours. So we we're going through um, into Kiev at night and through areas at night. And everyone on the train shut the shutters. Um, so all the train windows were closed as well. So if you're masking. We're talking to you right now on Zoom and it just kind of broke up there a tad. But but you mentioned watching TV. There's still clearly internet for us to do this interview. 
Um, what what kind of TV shows are on? Is it Ukrainian television that is still being programmed? Um, yeah, I unfortunately don't speak any Ukrainian, but there is Ukrainian television. My translator loves to watch it. So the news is a big thing. Um, we were sitting around the table today and with him and a couple of his friends, and they were just watching the news while eating dinner on their phones. So there is um, the TV is very limited to war coverage. Um, that's pretty much all that it has been is war coverage, which but obviously makes on. sense. But yeah, it, 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 that makes uh, obvious sense there, too. It, it just it's just striking to me, um, Madeline, for, you know, reading so much. Uh, we're all glued to what's happening there. But it sounds like life is is kind of continuing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Life is continuing for a lot of people as much as they can. And I think life has continued in a very particular way. Um, People who work are still working, but people who um, like work in restaurants, they obviously don't have any job at the moment. So a lot of people have been spending their time volunteering. They've been driving. Um, you can tell who volunteers because their cars have like yellow tape on it to show that they're volunteers. Um, people are just kind of doing everything that they can to help um, making Molotov cocktails, volunteering, bringing medicine. Um helping journalists with translations, anything, um, or building tank hedgehogs as an art collective. I think people have found a new, not new normal, but a new way to fill their day. Yeah. And you mentioned hedgehogs a couple of times. Are, are these like little metal things that, that tanks drive over that, that disables them or something? Um, oh, they're the, the big tank traps. Like they're the big ones that block up the streets. So they're oh, um, the, the three like the big tank traps. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, like these, the, the giant, yeah, giant steel. Like uh, they look like jacks. Like uh, uh, what, yeah. what's the old game? Uh, the the kids yeah, game, from like the 1930s. Ball. Yeah, where you we, we don't we don't know what it is. Jacks. Yeah, yeah, pickup <laughs> jacks. That's exactly the giant versions of that. I know what you're talking about now. Okay, uh, that, that yeah. that's just fascinating <laughs> to me. How, how long do you intend to be there? Um. It's been changing. I think I initially planned on only being here. Um, I wanted to be home by March 28th. I had a friend coming to visit in Germany, but they were they pushed back their visit. So now I just keep pushing it back. So I think now my um, intent is to stay through the first week of April. Um, I do have to be home. Classes start again April 19th. So that is my hard deadline for being home. But um, honestly, as long as I can. If you go home for classes or, or, or to see friends or just to, to you know, refresh yourself, or do you plan on returning? If it lasts that long, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, met, you mentioned that uh, if it lasts that long and, and when I asked you earlier about um, what you're going to do when the Russians arrive, is there a sense that the Russians will actually make it to Kiev? I don't think they will. I don't think they'll make it in the city. I think they assumed that the Ukrainians would not put up the fight that they did. And I think that the Russian military was woefully unprepared. I think um, on the Russian side, um, empathetically, they sent 18-year-old children to die here. And I think that um, the Ukrainians had a lot more fight in them than they expected. And I don't think that they were prepared for what was what they were talking um, I, I don't think they're going to make it in. I, I don't. Um, they, I think the issue now is they seem to be purposefully causing humanitarian crises. 
such as Mariupol, Kharkiv, um, and other cities, it seems uh, almost uh, fully empirically that they are purposefully just causing um, as much misery as they can in the process, um, yeah, just based on everything that we're seeing. Yeah, yeah. targeting civilians. Targeting kind of, civilians. I mean, right. Um, wow. Well, th this is this has been fascinating, and and I, uh, uh, you know, s salute to everyone you're with because the, the coverage we're seeing from uh, across the pond here is it shows the Ukrainian resistance really giving Russia hell. So, um, thanks so much for taking yeah, some time I mean, with even us. Even the old grandmothers are, <laughs> even the old really? grandmas are are willing to fight them. Yeah. <laughs> let me ask you one more thing before I let you go. I've, I've seen pictures. I think I shared some of these pictures on social media, on Twitter, uh, not long ago. But it was just uh, uh, like cases and cases of old bottles from Molotov cocktails. Is there like a drive for old bottles? Hey, empty out vases or empty out you know soda bottles or whatever or beer bottles you have and bring them down here and, and we're going to uh, uh, use them for Molotov cocktails? Um, I haven't seen any particular drives since I've been here, but... Um People that I know and people that I have talked to just did it on their own. I think um, one person said that they just got everything that they could and made their own Molotov cocktails and then hit them, um, hit them in places that they would be using them. So like if they were out on the street, they know where they are. I think it's just kind of been a very um, unorganized collective movement where everyone just had the same idea at the same time and put it all together. Um I think there might be small drives of like neighborhoods that will do it. But in general, I think everyone just kind of they saw, heard Molotov cocktails. They picked up some bottles and just immediately started making them. They're, wow. they're everywhere. <laughs> uh, that's incredible. Th thanks so much for the time. Take care of yourself while you're there. And uh, I, I really appreciate you. You kind of opened the window for us to see what life is like. Uh, aside from the military operations that are happening there in Kiev and across Ukraine. So thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. It's great talking to you again. Good to see you. Big shout out and, uh, you know, Texas salute and raising a, a glass to uh, to Maddie um, and everyone still in Kiev. Hopefully she is right in her predictions that the Russians do not make it there where, you know, if diplomacy works, who knows? what happens or if the Ukrainians are just successful enough and able to uh, keep the Russian troops away. Either way, it, it is a precarious situation and, and I worry it's going to get more dangerous in the, in the coming weeks here, uh, even as we are at the one month, um, I don't want to say anniversary, but the, the one month, uh, uh, you know, anniversary, let's just say it, it is what it is, four weeks into this uh, Russian invasion. If you want to follow Maddie on Instagram, you can follow her again. Her um, Instagram handle is uh, at Kelly Independent, K-E-L-L-Y Independent. And um, we're, we're going to check in with her again before she leaves the country to see how things are going. And hopefully, um, you know, hopefully she and her translator she's staying with and the people she sees on a regular basis are able to uh, to pull through this this, this terrible situation. Nevertheless, thank you so much for, for listening to this episode of Yolitics. Hope you got something out of it. I, I was fascinated to hear about what it's like actually on the ground, and I hope you were too. Talk to you soon.